Hello, and welcome to the Writers of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. So today we have a very, very special guest, our coordinating judge. He was a grand prize winner uh, in volume three for mm-hmm. Writers of the Future, and has since become a multiple New York Times bestselling author in both fantasy and science fiction. Please welcome Mr. David Farland. Well, thank you. Before we start talking about the uh, Manuscript Factory, the essay written by Owen Hubbard that uh, is used in the Rise of the Future workshop, mm-hmm. I'm curious, maybe others are as well, we've got um, a split identity happening here. We've got David Farland and Dave Wolverton. What's the, uh, what was your, your mindset on switching from Dave Wolverton to David Farland? I know we've got science fiction and fantasy, but how do all these different things well, fit? Well, you know, I was a new writer uh, when I decided to do it. And I had written my third novel, and I got a really nice review uh, in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction of my third novel. And it said, you know, if you if you want to find Dave Wolverton's books, go to the bookstore, look on the bottom shelf where his books hang out, and and find it there. And I had I had heard uh, that Campbell Soup just a couple of years earlier had done a survey and found out that 92% of the people wouldn't stoop over and pick up their favorite kind of soup off the bottom shelf at a store. And I thought, what in the world am I doing? I'm, I'm having all of my books placed on the bottom shelf down in Wolverton, right next to Roger Zelazny. And I started looking at other excellent writers who were on that bottom row, and uh, people like Gene Wolfe, and I realized that they were all teaching college and then supplementing their income by writing, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be writing for a living. So I decided then and there I was going to change my name. Now, I was a New York Times best-selling author. I was number one author in science fiction after my second book. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't dying or starving or right. anything like that, but it was... It just seemed to me to be a wise marketing decision. So I went to my editors and told them what I wanted to do, and they were dead set against it. They said, no, you're already a best-selling science fiction author. And it wasn't until I switched to fantasy that uh, Tom Doherty, my editor at Tor, said, yeah, go ahead and do that. That's, that let's give it a try. Uh, but he was very hesitant. He waited three months before making the decision and, in fact, told me, twice, no, we're not going to change your name. And then just before the book came out, he said, you know, let's, let's go ahead and do that. And we'll go out as David Farland. And I think it really helped because it put my books up where they could be seen. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Rebranding. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Now, as an instructor for the Rise of Future workshop, coordinating judge, and as a winner, there's various essays that are used in, uh, in the workshop itself. Mm-hmm. And um, these are essays that were written by Owen Hubbard that he actually wrote back in the 30s and 40s uh, that were published in Writer's Digest and such, and such publications then to provide that bit of assistance for the aspiring writer then. How do you think that these things hold up, these, these essays now? Well, you know, times have changed. And uh, so you would think that the writing advice would need to change too. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the case. I mean, the principles taught in the Manuscript Factory are just as vital today as they were back then. Right. Um, For example, L. Ron Hubbard in the Manuscript Factory talking about how he looked at different genres that he was writing in, and he realized that, okay, there's the adventure genre, there's airplane stories, there's uh, science fiction and fantasy, 
And he looked at how much he was writing in each genre and then how much he was selling. And uh, he was making his living off of short stories and realized that he was making more money per word if he would just switch to a slightly different genre where he was more popular. That same kind of thing is true today. When you look at book sales, there are certain books that um, really influence the markets. For example, uh, years ago, um, I was asked to help push a book big for the coming year. And uh, I was at Scholastic. Um, I had been writing some Star Wars books for them. And so the editor sent me a bunch of books and I looked through them. And I chose a book called Harry Potter to push big for the coming year and then helped uh, create a little um, promotion for it to help sell it in the stores. Mm -hmm. Well, it went out and sold, well, it's now up to 110 million copies. Uh, at the time, uh, it sold about 35 or 40 million copies in a couple of years. But when that happened, all of a sudden, uh, there had never been a, a number one New York Times bestseller that was a middle grade book before. Right. And all of a sudden, there were a bunch of books that started hitting the New York Times uh, bestseller list. Um, one of my students, Brandon Mull with Fablehaven, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list with a middle grade book. Um, so we saw this big influx of middle grade books that did really well. Well, what that did was, for a time, it probably boosted middle grade sales by 300 400%. Okay, and we saw that same thing happen again a couple of years later. One of my students, Stephanie Meyer, wrote the book Twilight, and all of a sudden there was young adult fiction that was hitting the bestseller list for mm -hmm. the next four or five years. And so that one of my other students, who James Dashner, who did The Maze Runner, his books were hitting number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, then a couple of years ago, we had Fifty Shades of Grey. And sales of erotica for females all of a sudden went crazy. And so we saw... You didn't that, train that one. But I didn't have anything to do with that one, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in, in that particular case, we saw a rise in the number of uh, romance novels that were selling by about 400% over the next uh, two years. That has gone away. So what's the next big wave going to be? I don't know. For, for sure. I think I know what it might become. I can kind of see some trends. But, uh, for example, I would be looking at uh, thrillers with female protagonists. Uh, I think there's a real big market out there that hasn't been satisfied. Mm -hmm. So um, I look at it and I go, yeah, just as L. Ron Hubbard was looking at the short story markets, I like to look at the novel markets and try to forecast what is going to do well there. And if, uh, if there's something that's, uh, that's a coming wave, you know, it's nice to see that. Now, most people, I don't think, get much of a sense of, of what that's going to be. They don't, they're not taking in as not enough information from enough different fronts to, to be able to see that. But, but it's just like being at the ocean, you know, when the, when the water gets calm and you, you look out and the, uh, the water seems to be receding from the, uh, from the beach, uh, you know that there's a big wave coming in a minute and you got to watch out for it. Right. And so that's what we're trying to do here. So 
there's that, that kind of thing. I think L. Ron Hubbard in there talks about the fact that everybody wants to have better sales. If you're a revolutionary, you want more people buying your book because it'll make more revolutionaries. If you're teaching self-help books, you want everybody to, to jump on the bandwagon and get your self-help books. So ultimately, it all comes down to money. How much money are you making? If you're, if you're doing really well and selling well, then you're going to be excited about what you're doing. Good. Now, in this uh, essay, too, he talks about, he defines the manuscript factory. He, yes. The writer yeah. himself or herself is that manuscript factory. That was something that when I first read it, that was a real eye-opener for me to think about it. Because my teachers in college were good teachers, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them very fine ones. But I would, I would define most of them as hobby writers. Um, they taught college, you know, for mm-hmm. a living. And then they wrote on the side, and they weren't making a living from their, from their writing. Uh, you have to have a little bit of a different mindset. You've got to be a bit scrappier if you're going to make a living in this business. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not impossible to make a living as a writer. Uh, right. It's far from that. In fact, I like to say that writing is both the easiest thing to do and the hardest thing that you'll ever do. And the reason it's the hardest thing that you'll ever do is usually when you uh, start up, there's so much... You'll have so many people saying, oh, writers can't make it. It's, it's a waste of time. Go, go get a different major. You know, when I was in pre-med, I had girls who wanted to date me lined around the block. And then I switched to an English major and I couldn't get a date. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think it's still the same. People don't, don't perceive this as being a, a job where you can make a lot of money. But the truth is that if you can get through that, if you can battle all the negativity and, and start writing and make a living, when you're writing, you really are a factory. Your job is to create books. And once you create those intellectual properties, whether it be a book or a movie or a video game, and you put them out, then they start selling in different languages. And all of a sudden, uh, you are like the leader of a tiny corporation that's doing business on a global scale. And, uh, and you have to take care of yourself. You have to realize that, as L. Ron Hubbard puts it, you know, you're a factory of one. The factory can break down. Uh, if you decide that you're having writer's block and you're going you're gonna to go off to Bermuda for the next two years, that factory may never open up again. So you need to take care of yourself, your, your health, your mental state, and uh, be aware that, you know, gosh, this is something that I'm doing for a living. Good. Now, the other thing on this, um, abs- you know, this, this concept of being a, a manuscript factory, he goes in there and, and discusses, you know, you're the one from your sales that's paying for the home, mm-hmm. paying for all the, all the expenses of the home. So he says, if you, if you want to be able to write in the living room, then everybody else can go in the den. Yeah. If you want to, you know, if your writing time is from 6 to 10, then that's the quiet time. Everybody else needs to work around that because that's what's paying for all these things. Yeah. How, how's that translated for you in your life? I think it's absolutely right. Um, I, I have uh, three places where I like to write, and, and I have a, an office, and then I have an uh, easy chair in my living room, and then I've got one up in my bedroom. And uh, when I'm writing, I tend to like it quiet. So... Um, that means my wife tries not to disturb me or disrupt me in any way. And, um, uh, and so she knows that, gosh, if I'm writing and it's, it's, uh, 
10.30 at night, she won't say, Dave, it's time to go to bed, and oh, let's talk about taxes, and uh, did you hear about the neighbors, and you know those kinds of things, because those are just too disruptive. So my, my children were trained from the time that they were young that when daddy's writing, you know, you don't bother him. Uh, one day, my five-year-old went and set the house on fire, and, and he didn't dare come into my writing room to tell me that the house was on fire. Instead, he ran up in his bedroom to hide. Uh, and, you know, I just about, uh, just about lost everything that way. We did lose most of the house, but, but my, kids disturb were, you. my kids were so well-trained, I was proud of him for not disturbing me. I was like, good boy, you did the right thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, when you are when you are the one who's paying for the house, you know you're uh, paying for all the finances and the medical bills and and uh, their dancing shoes and those types of things. You you really understand that yeah, I've got to go get something done. I can't just be sitting here. Right. Uh, I think you're driven. The other thing is is that that um, L. Ron Hubbard mentioned in there that when you're a writer, it's your creativity that is really uh, sort of your key ability. And a lot of people, when they're starting to write as hobby writers, they're afraid that they don't have enough creativity. And creativity is kind of an interesting thing. What I found is that, that when you use it, you get more. Mm -hmm. uh, the more you use it, uh, the more you develop that talent. There's a saying that a writer friend of mine has, uh, Christine Catherine Rush. I don't know if you've had her on, the, on your podcast. No, I've had yeah. her husband not twice, and I'm yeah. hoping to get her. So Chris, Chris once said, in writing, all failure is a failure of cre creativity, okay? In other words, it's a failure of the imagination. If you are plotting and your plot doesn't work, you have to sit down and reimagine the plot and mm -hmm. figure out how to make it work. If you've got a character who isn't well-developed, you have to go reimagine the character. If you have a sentence that is clumsy or malformed, you have to go and reimagine that sentence. And so we are using our creativity all the time to try to craft a beautiful story that people haven't ever heard before. And, and so we have to learn to trust our creativity and develop that creativity. And the best way to do it is to write the very best that you can and then get up and do it again tomorrow. It's just like exercising a muscle. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating because it's it's so true, and I see it in the Rise of Future stories that finally make it to, you know to the book itself. Is it's not that you've not had a wolf story or an astronaut story, but it's that creativity, like it's imagining something totally fresh, totally new. And I'm just I'm always amazed at such creativity that you find. And it's not that it has to be this type of a story. It's just so creative. Like, how do they think that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a story last year that went into the anthology that uh, I, I absolutely loved. I think it was a second place winner. And, and, uh, but it was a story that was set on the Titanic with Jack the Ripper going to fight the god Cthulhu. And I just like, what kind of twisted imagination came up with that combination? It was brilliant and beautiful. Totally brilliant. And uh, in any case, um, one of my favorite stories I've read in years. But, but it was so different from anything that I would have created because mm -hmm. I, never, I, I never use other people's characters or I tip, 
tend not to. Um, and so the idea of, of doing a mashup like that with a lot of favorites just, just wouldn't even ever come to me. And that's why I love reading us because uh, I discover stories that I had never thought of and that I absolutely love. I'm sure John Haas will love listening to this uh, part of, of this <laughs> podcast interview. One of the points that is made in that essay, Manuscript Factory, is the value of an editor mm-hmm. and an agent. Um, what's been your experience with that? Well, I, I think that uh, in certain genres, an agent is absolutely necessary. If you're writing uh, thrillers or you're writing, if you're writing for the young adult market or the middle grade market, you pretty much have to have one. Mm-hmm. In some categories, it's not required at all. And in other ones, it's probably uh, something you definitely want to do. In this age of self-publishing, uh, there are plenty of, of uh, genres where you can make a, a very good living. You can make millions of dollars just publishing your own material without an agent. However, when you have an agent, even if you're self-publishing, I have a, a friend who uh, self-published a science fiction novel recently, and he went out and we got him up to about number eight on the uh, on the uh, Amazon bestseller list on in, uh, in Kindle. And, and then he had an agent who contacted him. That agent has since gone out and sold his book in about 25 different countries and has brought in an awful lot of money um, mm-hmm. off of that book. And, and so an agent is pretty much always beneficial. If they're not, get a different agent. Uh, Which is what my advice is in the book. Is that it's totally worth the percentage that you pay if yeah. you think that you're, it's a waste. It's totally not a waste, but if it's not a good agent, then get a good agent. Then you've got to get a good agent. And the same is true with an editor. There are, there, there are a lot of great editors, uh, and they will usually have some good insights on your novel. They'll understand the markets. They know the publishing practices, when to put the book out, how to display it in the stores properly, and things like that. And so having a good editor is really valuable. If you are self-publishing, then you know you can hire an editor. I I do consultations like that quite a bit, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but there are people who work in the field as content editors, and you probably want a content editor. At the very least, you want a line editor who's going to look at your grammar and punctuation and make sure that uh, that. Uh, you're not looking silly, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, both of those come in very very handy. And a great editor, when I'm doing a content editor, my job, I feel, is to reimagine the story, and try to think of ways that the writer could have done this job better. And so I might look at it and say, you know, this character doesn't seem vulnerable enough to me. Um, how about if we did this? Mm-hmm. Or uh, the setting here is really kind of bland and uninteresting. What if we did this? And I just make suggestions on how to handle the rewrite. And, uh, and so I've, I've studied things like how to be a green lighting analyst in Hollywood. And so there are things that I know that probably most new writers would really have no idea that there's even a science or an art to what we're doing here sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think that a, a new writer really needs that old mentor working behind them. And that's really what a, a good editor should be as a mentor. Good. So um, with respect to... Now we're just talking to people listening to this that are aspiring writers who want to take the next level up. Yeah. 
reading these these essays that are taught in the uh, workshop itself, what can they stand to gain from from doing that? You know, getting good advice from professionals who really understand the business is is hard to do. A few years ago, I went to a couple of conventions where new authors wanted to be on the panels because they're trying so hard to promote themselves. And then they got up and they uh, talked about how things work in the business and they got it wrong. And and I'm sitting here looking at it and going, gosh, here's here's... 2,000 brand new writers who are getting bad information uh, at this big convention. So we started a little thing called the Superstars Writing Seminar, where we just had New York Times bestselling authors giving the advice. People who had been on the ropes before and had been through this business, you know, for many years. And that's what you get with these essays by L. Ron Hubbard. You get somebody who at the time of his writing was one of the premier authors in the field working on trying to give advice that genuinely is timeless. If you look at his essays, that's one of the really interesting things about them is that there are a lot of people who write about how to write and they're talking about how to write to today's standards. And when you look at L. Ron Hubbard's essays, you're looking at somebody who says, this is how to write, and it doesn't matter if, uh, if you're living today or if you lived in Plato's day or if you're living 200 years in the future, this is how you do it. And the principles are just as sound now as they were then. Uh, in fact, most of those articles are, are brilliant. They're solid gold, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the ones where I don't necessarily have a problem and don't have a lot to learn in that area are, are worth solid gold. Uh, for somebody else. Right. So, exactly. Good. Well, thank you very much, David. And um, thank you for listening to this podcast interview discussing the Manuscript Factory by Oren Hubbard. The uh, Rise of the Future podcast has been created, uh, again, to be able to provide that helping hand to the aspiring writer and the aspiring artist. It's available wherever you get podcasts. And um, we look forward to have you come back again for our next interview. In the meantime, thank you very much, David. Thank you. 